Well, as we've been doing now uh, for nine weeks, this being the tenth week, uh, we are entering into our tenth chapter, uh, studying Luke, the Gospel of Luke in the Scriptures, one chapter at a time. And as I do each week, I invite you to read that chapter in advance, think about what you're reading, ask questions, uh, and come with some of those. And so, uh, for the next couple minutes, if you have any questions that you're wrestling with, or there's something about this chapter that really stood out to you that you want to point out, I just want to invite you to share that at this time. Okay, David and then John. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about Oregon, then I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> we've had some really nice neighbors. We've met mm-hmm. the neighbors on both sides behind us and on one side of the front of the corner. So, uh, and they've all been real friendly. And another neighbor that's across the street from us, uh, they've met tennis. And uh, they even play a cookie season. So, <laughs> the stories you hear about Oregon is in California. So either they don't know where from California, or they're very friendly. <laughs> we'll, we'll bank on the other. <laughs> they're being very friendly. Okay, for chapter 10, so they were saying about 9. Jesus said how a large group of disciples, the first part talks about, prepared a way for him, just as harvest workers must labor with great haste to bring in their crops before it's too late, so too did Jesus instruct those disciples. These disciples are hurry and not to concern themselves with insignificant matters, uh, which to me would be kind of significant, as the words to eat and where to stay. Uh, <laughs> they would face great opposition along the way, and Jesus instructed them on how to handle being rejected by towns, mm. such as unreceptive Galilean cities. Yep. Only Luke suggests that Jesus ever sent down such a large group of disciples. The other three agree that Jesus sent out the twelve disciples to preach and to heal. Luke, however, mentions that this second mission was a larger group of 70 disciples. Mm. The other evangelists do not give the impression that Jesus had such a large and devoted group of, um, of followers. While Luke presents the workers as more, much more plentiful and the harvest as more abundant. Most of the material of Luke's story of the mission of 70 disciples is also found in Matthew. The different sayings of Jesus and Luke are sprinkled throughout Matthew, chapters 9 to 11, if you want to know. Now, possibly both evangelists found these sayings from the common source, each choosing to fit them into his account in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lawyer tested Jesus, this is part of the part that Pastor Sam likes, uh, a question about how to inherit eternal life. Both mm-hmm. Mark and Matthew include a similar story in which a scribe, Mark uses a scribe, and Matthew uses a Pharisee. Question of Jesus concerning which is the greatest commandment. Only Luke's gospel does the lawyer ask the second question, having been told that to inherit eternal life he must love his neighbor as himself. He asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In an answer, Jesus delivered one of the best known of his parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't have this written here, but um, the question would have been this. Did, did Matthew, Mark, and John know about the parable about the Good Samaritan and feel that it wasn't important enough to include in their writings? And, and fortunately, we have Luke's account of it, otherwise, we wouldn't have known it at all. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the most popular. Mm-hmm. And there are Good Samaritan laws. Mm-hmm. 
there is Good Samaritan hospitals. Mm -hmm. There's a Good Samaritan here that's on Samaritan Drive. Yeah. The world knows yeah. about Good Samaritan, <laughs> right? whether they're religious or Christian or not. Yeah. To me, it's just amazing. Yeah. Anyways, on the surface, this parable offers the simple teaching that a neighbor is anyone with whom one comes in contact, especially those in need. The specific identities of the characters involved, however, moves the parable beyond a simple moral lesson. The man who is beaten and robbed traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which marks him almost certainly as a Jew, the priest and Levi passed by without helping the man, perhaps because they did not wish to defile themselves by contact with blood or presumably a dead body. The Samaritan, the moral enemy of all Jews, took pity on the man offered him an extraordinary degree of assistance. And Jesus' sole intention had been to say that one's neighbor includes everyone. There would have been no need to identify the actors of the Levite, priest, and Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Jesus also critiquing the heartlessness of those of these Jews who allowed the law to support their humanity. With this parable, Luke continues a favorite theme that includes favorite theme and inclusion of all nations for the people of God. Mm -hmm. Even Americans can aspire to eternal life. Mm -hmm. and one, one last part of the chapter. On the journey toward Jerusalem, Jesus was welcomed into the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Luke does not include the location, but John, we can find out from John writes that it is in Bethany, mm -hmm. and he lives with their brother Lazarus, mm -hmm. uh, which we find out more about later. Uh, since Bethany is in Judea, just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus' journey, as he completes his ministry, would have been almost complete, having already passed through all Samaritans in northern Judea. Yet Luke makes comments later that the journey continued for quite some time, and even at these later points, Jesus is nowhere near Judea. He's still passing through Galilee and Samaria. Obviously, Luke's travel narrative does not follow a continuous geographical progression. The two women react differently to Jesus' arrival. Mary listens to what Jesus said, while Martha complained about having to do the customary with female serving tasks alone. It is highly significant that Jesus took the side of not Martha, who assumed the traditional female role, but of Mary, who presumed to act like a male disciple. Picture of Jesus allowing and encouraging Mary to act as would a male disciple continues the generally favorable treatment of women in Luke's gospel. Mm, some good observations. You you totally pegged me in that the Good Samaritan is one of my favorite portions of this chapter. <laughs> Secondarily, that part with Mary and Martha, I want to highlight that too because that's also one of my favorite parts. But the one thing I'll say in response to your observations that I love is that. This is an example. Having the Good Samaritan, which we don't have in the other three Gospels, we also don't get like the parable of the prodigal son, which is in Luke, that comes later in Luke 15. Those don't come in the other Gospels, but we have them because Luke got them. Luke wrote them down. And they're some of Jesus' most well-known teachings, most powerful and impactful teachings. And I love the observation that the phrase Good Samaritan is almost common parlance, right? For across a lot of cultures, we, we talk about a good Samaritan being someone who's willing to help. So there's even a reference to that built into so much of our culture. And like, I drive, I drive by it all the time, Good Samaritan Hospital, right? It's that, and even the fact that they, named a, like, that they name hospitals after it, I'm going to point out why that's super connected to this story. And I love that. Another thought? 
So, so good. John, did you have an observation or a question? First of all, thank you for sharing some of your story. And additionally, I agree that there's a power and a potency to the number and the fact that they're going out in pairs, right? So they go out in groups of two. They're sent to all these villages and towns and cities around. That is a lot of cities when you think about 30-plus areas or or cities or or towns that they're all going to. They're given instruction, like David pointed out, on what to do if if the town doesn't receive them well or what to do if they are received well. And I think that what you pointed out, I love this return component where we get a, a, a bit of their testimony to what happened when they went out. Because in my text, it says, Lord, in your name, even demons submit to us. And it's exclamation point. Like the translators and interpreters gave us this sense of emphasis that they're surprised at what happened when Jesus gave them authority to go do this. And there's a lot of things Jesus gave them authority to do, even more than just cast out demons which I'll talk about in a minute. But it's really cool to see their enthusiasm coming back from having been sent out, doing that work, seeing the fruit of it, returning back to Jesus and then being like, wow, look at the power of the kingdom of God that's flowing through us. This is so exciting. This is an amazing gift. Thank you. Um, And then Jesus uh, kind of follows that up with some teaching about encountering demons and stuff that's in verses 17 through 20. But that's really good. A good observation. Thanks for sharing. Anything else? Questions? Observations? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, a couple of things stood out to me in that section also. Uh-huh. When the 72 came back, mm. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Mm. That was thousands of years back, at least in our comprehension of time. Mm. It obviously, 
Yeah. <laughs> right? But, like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second, you know, so 72, they were all excited about all these signs of the Spirit, you know, casting out demons, all these cool things. They're, they're kind of all hyped up on that because mm. the really important thing is that you know your names are written in the book of life. Mm. Yeah. Those are not, like, the focus. Yeah. This is what's really important. Be glad of that. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's other things too. But this, to me, it's kind of like this is the core. This is like where you should really be grateful for this yeah. and the other things that get, might get added to it, but it's not the other way around. Yeah. Oh, those are really good observations. Um, the component of like how we get enamored with the fireworks, this is a really good point that you're making. We get enamored with fireworks, right? We look at Fourth of July, we see the fireworks going off, we're like, ooh! And that component of our observation of this stuff that goes on in Scripture, it's important to see how Jesus deals with that, how we can get enamored with the big flamboyant stuff, and then he, died, he kind of centers them down on, remember, those are good, but the really important stuff is to know that you're directly connected to God and that you have the promise of eternal life. That is, it's such a good observation. Uh, and then he said something else. That, uh, oh, so the component of Jesus really revealing his divinity, having known Satan was thrown down, right? He knows that story, but he doesn't make a big deal out of it. <laughs> Which everyone else would be kind of like, wait, 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 hold up. You saw, you saw what? <laughs> you were there for what? It's kind of like a surprise, and he doesn't make a big deal of it. Because he's so centered and rooted in his identity, connected to the Trinity, he doesn't have to make a big deal out of it. He just knows this is what I'm here to do and I'm going to continue to be faithful in doing it. And it's really, really good. Good observations. One more before I get to say my... I want my turn. <laughs> but anybody else who has any observations? Yeah, Gay. Okay. It does make sense. And I, you know, I didn't even think about that when I was reading this text. That's a really good observation to ask that question. Why would he say, don't greet anyone on the road? Like, I, I, this comes from my having grown up in Minnesota. When I'm out for a walk in the neighborhood, I'd say hi to everybody, right? That was kind of the thing. When I lived on the East Coast, that was not usually accepted. New Jersey in particular. No bad-mouthing New Jersey. I lived there for three years. But when I went to say hi to people, I got these really weird looks. Like, we don't say hi to people on the sidewalk. Just keep walking. <laughs> right? it, was, it was interesting. So a cultural thing. But maybe there is a component of focus and desire to, yes, go do this. This is the mission I've sent you on. I want you to really remember, you know, stay centered and rooted on that mission. Go do it. And then they return, and they can testify to all that God has done. That's totally a legit interpretation of it. I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, and I really appreciate you giving me that observation because now it's got the wheels turning. I want to. I want to understand why as well. That, that's a really good question, Jen. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. 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 That's a good point. There are places all over the New Testament letters. Yeah. Paul points that out, definitely. A thought that just occurred to me is that in passing on a road, you can't really create relationship. Right? It's, it's in passing. It's super, like, quick. You might say hi, you might talk, but then you're moving on. Right? And his goal is for them to go somewhere where they could, like, be for a while. Plant roots, put them down, talk to people, go in their home, share a meal. This is really intimate home stuff. So part of me wants to say, and this is totally off-the-cuff observation, thanks to your amazing question, Gay. My thought is, I wonder if the focus was, yes, the mission and the mission revolves around relationship. So passing on the road, you're not going to be able to build one there. No one sits on the road to build relationship. It's a place of travel. Where we want to go, I want you to go to their home. I want you to, when they invite you in, you go in, share a meal, get close, get connected, share the good news, pray with them, watch what happens. And so they do that, and that's why they see such great fruit, is because they were building relationship while doing it, as opposed to something that just happens transactionally or fast. It's slower, right? I wonder if that might be a, a component of it. That's good, though. What a phenomenal question. You got me running. John, one more thing, and then I gotta get to my notes. This is like a totally brand new question and observation for me that I will have to sit with for a while because I, I really love it. I think there's a lot to that. So thank you, all of you, for some phenomenal observations and questions. Those are really great. I just want to walk through these components of this chapter and then land in some really powerful application for us. First of all, with the 70 sent on a mission, Jesus says, go, build relationships, eat with people. When they invite you into their home, go into their home. When they invite you into this hospitable space, that's the place where the gospel will be shared. Uh, and pray for them. Pray blessing upon them. See what happens. Liberate people. Free people from demonic oppression. Heal people. Love people. It's really, it's really impressive. Like This is a full-orbed mission. And they're sent out into these neighborhoods and these towns and these cities to do that work. And then they come back. And like many of you pointed out, there's rejoicing and testimony to what God did when they went out through them. And Jesus says, 
this powerful observation. He says that wisdom, or intelligence, I should say, intelligence or smarts didn't make this happen. Right? It's not that you were super smart and that made this all happen. Right? You don't have to be smart, as the world labels smart or measures smart. They were just open and available. I'll go. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Who you love, I'll love. That's where I want you to be. Just go do that work. And they did. And they were prepared. I will say this. Even though they may not be the the elite academic minds of the day, these are blue-collar people, regular, everyday, average people, Jesus did train them. There was training involved, right? But it didn't come with a diploma from a really prestigious school or, you know... You have to have this in order to do it. You have to have the credentials. It was a, a life of developed discipleship under Jesus that prepared them to then go do what Jesus called them to do. But also was in the middle of the process of discipleship. It wasn't after a, they were complete, right? They're sent out and they come back because there's more to learn. They get sent out again and come back because there's more to learn. It's a beautiful rhythm, an ebb and flow of what discipleship looks like. You don't spend, like, say, the first 25 years of your life soaking up information and then spend the rest of your life applying it. It's like a, a more smaller rhythm of a week in, week out. You absorb, you apply. You absorb, you apply. Right? It's a very simple process, a very basic model that Jesus is employing. And he sends them out, and they do amazing things. God uses them to do some profound things. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of my absolute favorite texts in all of Scripture. It's obviously very powerful. It has influenced people. It's become the name for hospitals and ministries, and people just know the phrase Good Samaritan. They even have an idea of what that means. Someone who cares about someone else, potentially even a total stranger. People get that. That's all built into that phrase. What's fascinating, and David pointed this out, is that this whole parable is a response to a lawyer's question. Right? We wouldn't get the parable if the lawyer didn't ask this question. What, what is it that gets me eternal life? How do I get that? Jesus gives him the first kind of pre- pre- like small answer, following the commands of God. But when the lawyer wants to justify himself, and this is the key component Luke brings out that I, I love. He says, the lawyer wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? The lawyer wants to figure out the box that this all fits in and say, okay, now I know how it works and I can control it. And I know who I'm supposed to take care of and who I don't have to worry about. (laughs) And Jesus says, okay, if you want a little box, let me tell you a story. And he tells one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard, which in the end is very powerful because there's three examples of how to do it. A Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. Like David pointed out, you've got these people who maybe because of their theology or their ritual practice would have been afraid to touch a body or blood for a lot of reasons. But their belief in the law is getting in the way of doing the heart of God's work. Because right? the, the heart of the law, which Jesus brings out all over the place, is love God and love people and love yourself. That's the heart of the law. So these examples of people come through and when the third one comes, Jesus over-embellishes to it the exponential degree how generous this guy is. You're on a road in the wilderness 
in a place and time where there are no electric lights. You're not in a car with some sense of safety because you can close the door and lock it. You're not on a train that goes fast. You're on a road with probably a donkey walking. And it apparently means, apparently this road is a trafficking road for thieves who want to beat you up and steal your stuff. And so this guy, who we don't know anything about in Jesus' story, is robbed and beaten and left for dead. Apparently wounded so badly that if he would have been left there long enough, he would have died. When the third person on the story makes their way by, they have compassion upon the man. The, the Samaritan sees him and knows that he has a responsibility to do something. He knows he can do something. And so every element of what the Samaritan does could be translated into medical terminology, if you will. The Samaritan essentially becomes roadside triage. Right? He says, all right, I'm going to bandage your wounds, going to take care of what I can take care of right here, first aid. I'm going to put you on my animal, turning that into an ambulance. I'm going to walk you down the road to an inn and turn that into a hospital. I'm going to pay the innkeeper to take care of you because I have other work to do, but I want to make sure you're taken care of, so I've turned him into a nurse. Right? Every component of what the Samaritan does can be translated into medical terminology or medical sphere kinds of things. He does all that, and in the end, Jesus says, which one of these three was a neighbor? It's really a trick question. <laughs> right? when, you, when you get a story like that, the lawyer has no out. There's no way out. He can't say the Levite and the priest were good neighbors. He just can't. They ignored someone in need. So he's stuck. Jesus has trapped this very well-trained lawyer with a story. And the lawyer says he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Do you notice that in the text? He doesn't say the word Samaritan. He says the one who showed compassion. Because he, like David pointed out, feels that cultural tension between Jews and Samaritans. He doesn't even want to say the word Samaritan. He says the one who showed compassion. And Jesus says, okay, then go do the same. And it's really radical. I have to imagine that the lawyer feels a lot of things at this point. Maybe some embarrassment and shame for having tried to justify himself and trying to catch Jesus right into something that would be neat and manageable for him. I don't know, there's a lot of things he could feel. But he's going away knowing what he's called to do. So regardless of if he does it or not, Jesus gave him an opportunity to respond. You could do this. You could love people like this. And this is what I'm calling my people to love people like. You may not like that I used a Samaritan as the hero of my story, but maybe you need to swallow that pride and own that God loves Samaritans too. So a whole slew of stuff in that beautiful parable. And then, last but not least, the chapter ends with this beautiful short story about Mary and Martha. And um, there is a lot to say culturally about it. David brought up good points about how Mary is doing something that is generally expected of the men and not the women. Martha's kind of falling into line with what women would have typically done. And Jesus doesn't buy into the system. He just says, she picked a better portion. She's doing the thing that's actually better. And think about it this way. With all the stories, we read one just a few weeks ago where Jesus multiplied bread and fish. If Martha sat at Jesus' feet, Jesus could have taken care of the cooking. Right? He could have made bread and fish come out of nothing. <laughs> and he would be like, all right, let's everybody eat. Nobody needs to cook. 
Because the more important thing is this relationship, right? Or some other cool thing, some other cool trajectory. We don't know. But what's beautiful about the story is that there's a teaching component for everyone in it. Mary is edified in her decision to want to learn from Jesus. She could have felt a lot of awkwardness by sitting at his feet listening. Like, what are they thinking of me? I should be working. Right? We don't know what she's thinking or feeling, but Jesus edifies her. And then Martha comes and he says, you know what? This is, this is the idea. This is the main idea of everything. It's relationships. So why don't you even come sit down? She's chosen the better portion. It's about being before doing. The being comes first. So lots of big ideas in this text. We've got mission. We've got all the ways in which Jesus talks about it with the 70. Love, heal, bless, liberate people. In the end, Jesus says it's not about intelligence. Being smart's not going to get you there. Being, seeking knowledge is a good thing, but don't make it an end in and of itself. Right? Read books. Learn. Study. That's really, really good. But don't let it be a measurement of your fruitfulness, as if that's the goal. Change, transform your mind. Be renewed in the transforming of your mind. Means to give your mind to the service of God. Allow God to use your learning to do something, right? And then, the Good Samaritan, I, I, I like to think of the Samaritan as a picture of the church, right? You could see us as community as a picture inside this one guy. The church is meant to be a hospital for people, for souls. That's our mission, to welcome people who are hurting, grieving, broken, lost, who don't know their way. Because guess what? That's you and me, too. <laughs> In case you think you know what you're doing all the time. <laughs> I know I'm not always, I don't always know what I'm doing, and I know that I have fear and doubt, and I wrestle with the future, and what does that mean, and how do, I, how do I truly follow Jesus? So even those of us who've been in church for decades need to recognize that it's a hospital for us, too, just as much as it's a hospital for those we want to welcome. So we're a community of people who seek the healing of others. And then, Mary and Martha's story, if you, would, if you wanted to kind of like create a phrase to understand it, I think what's really important is that we're human beings, not human doings. You have an identity, and this is a big deal for Americans, because people who live in the United States of America, we're driven by this concept that our value is based on our productivity. That if we can't produce, we no longer have value. Right? And as a culture, we, we see this in how we treat children and the elderly. People who really can't produce much, right? We, we tend to kind of cloister them off, when in reality they are to be honored. And Jesus says that I'm welcoming the kids, the ones who can't produce anything. That's how you're supposed to be. You come to me as a humble person, a childlike heart who just wants to receive. And you see how people who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I see this as a chaplain in a retirement community, who wrestle with, what good am I? I can't do anything I used to do. I can't walk as well. I can't see anymore. I can't hear very well. They wrestle with their value because they can no longer do what they used to do. And oftentimes I'm helping them untangle and say, actually, in God's eyes, you have tremendous value, regardless of what you can do or not do. And wherever you are on the age spectrum, you still have a gift to offer. It's up to you to listen to God for what that gift might be. But the, the call of the church is to help people see that their value is not in what they produce, 
but in what God says about them. So two final invitations. Very simple, very easy. I, well, not, not necessarily easy. <laughs> but two invitations for you. In keeping with this parable of the Good Samaritan, I want you to keep your eyes open. Just have your eyes open to the needs of others around you this week. So pay attention when a neighbor calls you and says, Hey, I need this. Or a friend or family member says, Can you help me with this? Or a stranger you happen upon in the store says, You can tell they need help. Offer to help. They may not take it, and that's okay. You don't have to force your help on someone. But offer. Offer to help. Just pay attention to need all around you. You'll be surprised at what God does and how people cross your path or your path crosses theirs and you realize, oh, there's a need and I can help meet it. And just love that person. Love them where they are and help them if you can. The other part is, in keeping with the Mary and Martha story, spend time with God. And that can look a million different ways. Maybe you're a silence, solitude kind of person. Maybe you're a worship, singing, praise kind of person in your car or your shower. Maybe you're a, I sense God's presence when I'm out physically using my body to serve someone. Right? There's so many different ways that we practice spiritual disciplines, rhythms that connect us to God. But intentionally and mindfully spend time with God this week. Just like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Soak up whatever God gives you. And then look for the opportunities that God gives you to give that away. Alright? So pay attention to need. Spend time with God. Pretty straightforward. But you might be surprised what God lays in your lap. Amen? Alright, let's close with a word of prayer as we finish our time together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of Luke chapter 10. So much amazing content, questions, observations. Uh, stories that we need to read in order to be edified, in order to be filled, in order to be guided and given wisdom about what it means to follow you. So we pray that like the 70 sent on mission, you would give us power and authority to do great things, but that we would also remember our main idea, our main rootedness is just trusting you with every day of our life. So whether or not the fireworks come, Lord, give us faith to trust you with each day. Bless us with eyes to see the needs around us like the Good Samaritan. Bless us with a heart that yearns to sit at your feet and soak up your presence like Mary. We thank you for your presence here with us. Bless us, we pray, and send us in the power of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Spend some time in fellowship.